Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. My guest today is Dr. Cartman. He is a father, son, brother, uncle, thinker, writer, therapist, photographer, drummer, grassroots, and grassroots mental health advocate. He is a Chicago native where his cultural and educational foundations were cultivated by several African-centered institutions. He received his undergraduate degree from Hampton University and a PhD in clinical and community psychology from Georgia State University. His recent work includes being a trauma-focused clinician, restorative justice coach, and program evaluator with HELP LLC, Healing, Empowering, and Learning Professions. Dr. Abari Cartman has served as a professor of psychology at Georgia State University and the Caruthers Center for Inner City Studies at Northeastern University. Dr. Cartman recently created a male rights of passage curriculum called Manifest that is being implemented in juvenile detention centers, schools, and in private community settings. Dr. Cartman is the current president of the Chicago Association of Black Psychologists and a curator of a directory of Black mental health providers. As a consultant, Dr. Cartman facilitates trainings for adults and workshops with youth about maintaining good mental health, critical analysis of hip hop and media, racial and cultural identity, developing authentic manhood, and healthy relationships. Dr. Cartman's first book is called Ladies' Man, Conversations for Young Black Men about Manhood and Relationships. It is a critical thinking guide that addresses historical trauma, hip hop, emotional intelligence, intimacy, communication, power, purpose, and a variety of other topics. This book is a tool for families, teachers, mentors, and coaches to help young men think critically and build character, discover their purpose, love themselves and each other, communicate with clarity and intention, understand the need for proper education, relate to women with integrity, express their emotions, understand their place in history, develop healthy coping strategies, and learn how to build a world where all people are truly free. I want to welcome Dr. Cartman on our podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. And thank you for doing this work. Thank you for doing this work. Um, it's a real honor to have you here because I've only witnessed you from afar, uh, being in Chicago and, and witnessing a lot of the the work that you're posting through social media and the grassroots efforts that you're doing here locally. And so it's really an honor to, um, to speak with you and, and to read your bio. It's like, whoa, all the different uh, tentacles mm -hmm. that you've put out there and, and foundations that you're laying is quite brilliant. So thank you, sir. Thank you. 
I have asked you to be here on the podcast because you are having these conversations with black men, with people in your community. And that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the audience of whiteness. And yet that someone doing the work you're doing, a black man doing the work you're doing, obviously you have language that um, uh, lends to this particular conversation that I'm bringing forth. Uh, on speaking to whiteness. So I'm, I'm wondering if we could just start there. Like when I say well-meaning white people, mm. what does that mean to you from your stance and lens in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, great question. Uh, lots of thoughts, even as you, as I listen to the intentions of the podcast, the title, like your frame for this conversation is very provocative. And I'll say that in the sense that it's not just you know, interesting for interesting sake, but provokes lots of thought for me before we even start. Just my wheels have already been turning as we've, you know, before we even get the conversation going. And it's and and to answer your question, my first thought about it is it's it's really, really subtle. Um when you the first thing you said about me, your first introduction of me was Dr. Cartman. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But um, when I introduce myself, I usually, sometimes, I I usually don't use the doctor first. Um, I think it's important for professional settings. It's important for, you know, business transactions. Um, It's important when I am in rooms with young people who don't usually see the doctor associated with a Black person uh, that appears to be younger than what they expect. Uh, I was in Boston recently, did a workshop, and the boys flat out said, I thought you were going to be a white man from the description that I saw on the flyer. Um, so I used the doctor for those reasons. Um, but it's not the doctor as much that caught my attention as you introduced me. It's the Cartman. And every time I hear Cartman, I remember that that isn't a name that's consistent with my the lineage of my ancestors. I, 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 I usually say Dr. Obari when I introduce myself. Um, I am uncomfortable with my own last name. It's so subtle, right? You wouldn't know that. There's no reason, right? When you said so, we, when I hear well-meaning, I hear, why would you not think to call me Dr. Carpenter? Uh, and I think that the people, when people say it, the 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 attempt is to say it with some reverence, right? To give it to the, the honor and the respect, right? Right. So it's, it's it's that subtle. It's you are trying to respect me, and my first thought is, oh man, I still haven't changed my last name, right? Um, and because I personally can choose not to use it, I'm aware of the discomfort that I feel with it, but you you wouldn't, you shouldn't, there's no reason for you to. Um, and unless you ask the question, I would not have even explained it to you like that. If, if the frame of this conversation wasn't this particular conversation, you would never know that I don't like my last name. Mm. And you could continue to use it over and over again with intended respect. And I could continue to feel shame when I hear it, right? Mm. Um, and, and it's a mixed conversation. I oh. want to pause and just say, like, one of the, the inner thoughts you said is, oh, man, I haven't changed my last name yet. Mm-hmm. And and how that is a part of your inner conversation with you around, wow, your last name here is associated with this white, right? That whiteness, that's that yeah. subtle um, non-association from who you are. Right. And and that's powerful because I only use it because you're offering it as the name of the interface for the public, right? And I say, yeah. okay, give me your bio. But yeah, if it yeah, would have yeah, said yeah. Dr. Obari, I would have yeah. righteously and willingly wanted to address you Absolutely. according to the way it best feels for you. 
Right, right. As right. opposed to the way you have to present yourself in a proper way, in mm -hmm, professional mm -hmm. way. Like, so that's such a good naming to start. Yeah. I just wanted to acknowledge. I'm so sad. It's just the day to day. It's the, the so I, I talked to a lot of, um, I used to teach a course when I was doing uh, um, uh, uh, college level uh, professor stuff. And it was a um, cross-cultural diversity kind of stuff. And I heard from white people over and over again that they don't have a culture. When we think culture, we think, you know, the other. We think ethnicities. We think, you know, we think people of color. We think like dress or kente cloth or foods or fiesta. We think other things when we think culture. And because for, for so many white people, their culture just is, there's just the way people move without thinking about it uh, makes people, makes white people oblivious to the ways in which just their natural forms and natural daily routines are contributing to systems that, that perpetuate harm and disinvesting, you know what I mean, just by being. And so one of the things that I've got that I've grown an appreciation for, for the compassion that I have for white people doing the work that you're asking white people to do, which is to interrogate, to reflect, to be intentional, is I get to experience in this day through our, the renewed in, uh, uh, excitement and in, in, invigoration around our conversations about gender. And so as a black man, I fall in between, right? If we, talk, if we think about the hierarchies that capitalism is based on this, you know, the white over black, uh, male over female, straight over LGBTQI, this ability over, I mean, so there's these clear hierarchies. And so mm -hmm. in my body, I'm both at the same time. I'm a man, which gives me privileges, and I'm a Black person, which gives me lacks of privileges. And so I get to experience that contradiction every day, where I am having to be aware of the ways in which my maleness gives me the same thing that people who identify as white have, which is just an inherent, oblivious, you know, way of being that is harmful to other people that they interact with. Um, and it's the conversation around gender that's made me realize as I talk to my to talk to women, talk to my sisters, uh, have conversations about uh, uh, misogyny and, and sexism, um, that it's, it's just those, those simple, gentle conversations that make me aware of things that I never would have thought of, never even considered, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'll go on dates and never in my mind has it crossed my mind to take a picture of a license plate on a first date with a woman and send it to my, my boys. Never has, has it never crossed my mind to think about my safety and when I meet a person. And then when I talk to women who are having to always think about that, uh, it's just those very you know subtle but powerful, very meaningful, oblivious pieces where I'm making assumptions about you know touch or closeness or you know, uh, just, uh, you know, I, I think part of the privilege of being in the power class is the assumption that people should feel privileged, should, should, should want to be close to you or should want to spend time with you. They should be honored to be in your presence, right? Just that arrogance is a part of just the natural way people socialize, socialize. and that aspect of their identity that is the power over in the hierarchy that capitalism creates. So I got that in my body, in my maleness, 
mm. and it's, it's ingrained in me. Mm. And I'm and I struggle with that against the same reality where my blackness makes that same black male combination, the interaction of those things, a threat, uh, a, a liability at the, at the same time, right? And so we're talking oppression and 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 you know uh, you know white white patriarchy, um, and and so black men are like, but like we not winning, so why y'all mad at us? Um, but then we are privileged in ways that again we could be oblivious to if we don't sit and listen to the people that are impacted by us. We saying we love them, and they saying they feel like they they feel hated by us, right? It's yes. those contradictions that you know we got to sit down, we got to think through, we have to listen. Um, I don't love the uncomfortable conversation part of this. I'll, we go right to it. I don't love that the frame is uncomfortable because. That makes the people that want to remain oblivious get to choose to enter the conversation or not. And when people aren't wanting to be uncomfortable and are in the power position, they can be like, no, I don't feel like it. I would rather not be uncomfortable. Um, my work in with sort of masculinity and black male sort of privilege, I try to enter it in a way that um, because I have a level of like grace, compassion, you know, systems understanding around the thing, like I get why men move the way they do. Like I get how we were trained. And so because of that, I, I try to approach it with a sense of like, it's like, it's not your fault. You know, you're not, you know, you're not the, the enemy. Um, it just now that we are aware of it, we should be grateful for the conversation and do the work to undo, to, to, to interrogate, to revise. Mm -hmm. um, I would love for that conversation to be more comfortable, not uncomfortable. I would love for that to just be, yeah, I want the women in my life to feel safe. Let's just, let's just figure this out. Um, it doesn't have to be edgy. It doesn't have to be like, oh, no, I'm going to get you. Because that's how it feels now. It feels like the, the toxic masculinity idea makes men move away from it because we don't want to be the enemy, particularly in a world when we already feel defeated. And so it just makes men choose not to engage, black men in particular. I'm just going to not, not be engaged. I'm going to dismiss it completely. I'm not even going to hear any of the relevant points that could help me be a better man because I'm holding on to this level of power and privilege that's an illusion in lots of ways, but it's all I got if there's nothing else. Um, I don't want I don't want to bring men to a space and say, okay, now let's just hold you accountable and go right to digging into your the, the, the ways in which you have been predatory because I know that turns the, the, their, their ears off or makes them not even come into the room in the first place. I want to come into the room like, man, I get it, bro. Like, this is just what it is. Uh, it ain't got. It, it doesn't have to be what it always will be. And we can change that. And we benefit from it. And your daughter's benefited from it. And we can do this in a way that is, you know, it could be easy, right? It's, it's, there's work, you know what I'm saying? Like, but you don't have to feel villainized. And I think that's what's happening. Uh, you know, I, I feel like white people are feeling villainized in ways that makes them not coming to, to listen to your podcast. It, it gives you a select group of those few white people that are already on the fringe or already been challenged with whatever it is or have children that are pushing them or whatever it is. Um, but then the majority of them get to still choose to still be comfortable and are rewarded for those comforts. And then they continue to perpetuate the systems that operate as they have always operated. Um, I would love for this conversation to be commonplace. And so and let's go there. Like help. Yeah. Um, what I hear you doing quite eloquently is giving an example of how, as a man, 
And as a black man, right, you you have to stretch yourself to be like, remember, there might be elements to being a man that I can't see. So let me look yeah. at that. And you're kind of giving the parallel of how you've done that to kind of see levels of misogyny. But that's that's um, kind of is what I hear you saying is that the conversation of saying uncomfortable conversations on well-meaning white people will automatically um, push away the people that need to hear it because yeah. it's making them at fault for being white. Yeah. And there's, there's the, the conversation, it sounds like an inherent deficiency. I want white people to feel like there's nothing wrong with being white. You're not, it's not, you're not broken because you're white. You're just white. That's what you were born. This is the world you were raised in. Um, this is what you were taught. This is how you're socialized. Um, like I, I use, we start with name. There's nothing wrong with my parents choosing to name me Donald or, or Michael or Grant, you know what I mean? Whatever the, the American name is. It's not a wrong name. It's not a bad name. It's just not my name for my, my culture. It's just not the, the name that's in alignment with my, my cultural tradition. You're not, you're not bad. You're not, you know what I'm saying? I don't want people mm -hmm. to come into a room mm -hmm. to feel like they're going to be uh, attacked. I think that's what's happening. And when people feel like when people can anticipate they're going to go into a space where they're going to be attacked and they can choose not to, they will. Just going to mm -hmm. choose not to. Um, I don't disagree with you one little bit because the reason I started my original podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations Podcast is mm -hmm. because I was exposing stories that were predatory patterns from my childhood upbringing, which was yeah. a yoga culture that nobody had talked about in a public domain. They might have talked about it or kept it in their bodies privately, but yeah. nobody had brought it to public space. Now, the reason it's uncomfortable is because when things are happening, but they're happening in dark spaces, meaning in secret spaces, mm -hmm. behind closed doors, or it's history mm -hmm. that's trying to be hidden. Yeah. When you take that history out from hiding, by nature and by our by trauma-informed healing process, I've learned that it's uncomfortable to move through stages of saying, whoa, I didn't know that happened. Mm -hmm. Now I'm learning about a bunch of stuff that's happened and I'm going to go through a stage with that's a level of cognitive dissonance in this place of saying, well, who am I beyond the false identity that I've been conditioned mm -hmm. to participate in? Yeah. And so it's it is meant to create safe space for listening, even though the things we might hear might hit us and create uncomfortable resonance because it brings up a lie of history and self-identity that might be rooted in false identity, just like you're bringing up your last name. Like, it's yeah. just not yours. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a stage of uncomfortability every time you hear it. Yeah. It says, now you have that experience, but other people might not know that. And I think white people have to go through those stages. Collectively, we have to do that. But that's what I'm saying. Don't have together. To. I'm saying that we don't have to don't do have that. To. They can, you can choose to. I can choose to deal with my, the ways in which my masculinity has, the ways it's been presented to me. I can decide mm. to go down that dark road and self-reflection. I could not. I could just live my life. And I think that there are systemic advantages to not in the way that the way masculine is presented is rewarded. Um, I could continue to be, you know, to have the bravado, the arrogance, whatever it is that I consider masculine and toxic at the same time. Um, there's no consequences for me to continue to do that. Cancel culture, maybe, but like, that's not real. People are still winning, 
right? Um, and so if we are saying we want people to do that, if I want someone to go to therapy, for example, and mm -hmm. do the work, it's, so it's, it's, there's work. Some of this is semantics. I'm aware that just some, some of this is nitpicky, but, but I think there's something about the frame that I, I want us to always be considering, that I try to, to wrestle with in my work. Uh, I want the therapeutic process, the, the transformational process, I know it's going to be work. You're going to bump into contradictions. There's going to be there's going to be tension for sure, right? There's no doubt. There's going to be tension. I want to, as a facilitator of that process, I want to make that process as, as comfortable as possible. I want I want it to be. I want I want you to know it's going to be work, but I'm going to be here to to, to hold you while it happens. That um, in order for you to do the stuff that's difficult, know that there's a community that's going to support you. Um, that's a different framework than going into a space knowing that you're going to be attacked, knowing that someone's going to call you an enemy, and then you just got to take it. Like you just got to deal with it. You've been you've been causing harm, and now as a perceived victim, I'm going to hold you to the fire, and you just got to deal with it. That part, that frame of the discomfort, I think makes people choose not to come into the space. Um, and if the point is to be effective and not just right like we can say the right stuff over and over again if people won't come or read or listen then we're just talking amongst ourselves or talking to self-selected types of people but if we want to grow the audience of people that are listening and, and participating I think there's something about the way we present it that can be intentionally more comfortable and still have the same rigor and tension and work and it's difficult still Mm -hmm. um, but I'm intending for it to be safe for everybody, even those that have been the perpetrators. Because if I'm seeing the perpetrator as someone that was doing it obliviously, then I can have some grace for that. And it's a wiggle room for the grace, because once I make you aware of it in a comfortable way, now I got to hold you to it. Now you're aware. Now you can't, mm -hmm. you can't fake oblivious no more. At that point, I believe the discomfort should rise. At that point is when you start to hold, you know, light, light flames or remove people or apply pressure. Um, but to ease people into it, I think there's something about not making people come feel like they're coming into a space where they're going to immediately be villainized just for who they are, just for being a man, just for having been a, in a man body. Um, and I feel like a lot of men feel that way. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's I, what I mean. I, I feel agree. Like with, just feeling, with, and so because I have that experience with men, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm I'm assuming that a lot of white people are also having that parallel experience. Um, and that's what I saw. All that's my long question for the well-meaning part. The oblivious, well-meaning, think they're doing well, think they're just doing fine. They're just living their life as is. Um, and being able to choose whether to enter the conversations about transforming or reimagining if they choose, if they choose to. Um, but could also just go to work and raise their kids and, you know, pay taxes, all that well-meaning, all that just fine. Um, we, we all, I pay taxes. I'm a, I'm a well-meaning taxpayer. It, it just takes a, just a little bit of a like dig to realize that I'm contributing to violence around the world. I'm, I'm complicit. I participate mm -hmm. in the oppression of other people just by the daily activity of going to the store just by paying, you know what I'm saying, uh, having a social security number. Inherent in my just routine is that. And there's layers of that. There's levels to that. There's, so the, 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 the more elite, the more access to resources you have, the, the more complicit you are. 
Um, but I get well-meaning, like I get just, you know, I get oblivious, I get all of it just because I've had to wrestle with that for myself. As a black man on the South side of Chicago, raised in, you know, in poverty, still not, I still don't have a lot of money. I'm still not, I don't have insurance right now. I don't have savings account. Like I'm still in a position where I'm not like privileged in that way, but I got a doctorate, which gives me access. I got, you know, my, my maleness gives me privilege. My education gives me privilege. My family upbringing, there's privileges that I have. Um, so I think everybody has to do that. Where, where, where in your, in your body, where in your experiences, where in your life has, do you have privileges and where have you been harmed, where you have disadvantages and just content with that piece by piece, moment by moment. I think that's the best meaning. I think well-meaning is stable survival, but I think beyond well-meaning to go transformation, go improvement, evolution requires these difficult conversations, this, the work of the addressing the contradictions um, and on top of that, I think there's a way that we need to bring people into it that makes it more welcoming than it is. I can appreciate what you're saying. So essentially, you're just saying that the frame that I'm bringing people in to hear the conversation um, may actually repel them. They might not actually bring them into the space that I'm intending. Um, yeah. And it's something that I should examine. So well, I, the I them, there's a certain them. There's some people that are calm, some people won't come. The people that need right. it the most aren't going to come aren't going to get it, get it. Um, and I welcome that. Thank you for, um, for that perspective. Um, I'm wondering if you would take us back in your own life of ways in which you've interacted with well-meaning whiteness in which you knew that they had no idea what they were doing and you chose to just not bring it up or confront it just to move on because you knew it was more systemic than it was something situational to deal with with that person you know i mean i would say that's most of the time i almost never address it um i maintain the oblivion because it's not worth stopping every moment to be like no that's not really what that means or i would prefer you not to do that it's much easier to just get in and get out of the conversation um mm. the mo most often when white people say or do things that are, that i don't like i i keep it I'm not, and there are other people, people have different approaches where they, you know, I'm going to say something every time. That's not, I don't, it's not working to me. That's not my ministry. That's not my fight. It's not my battle. Yep. Thank you for naming that. Thank you for naming that. I was literally just speaking about this the other day and I was realizing that is like a form of setting boundaries of just like, mm -hmm. yep, that that's not mine. And yes. I'm going to stay on my work. Like you said, mm -hmm. that's not my minute. I just, I appreciate the language you just brought to that. But would you still expose some examples that you see every day, all day long that you um, just have moved on about? I also very part of my boundary is to not. I don't have a lot of white people in my life. My mm. work is is very black centered, and the organizations I work with are very community based. Um, I'm just now, I think there's a new project um, out in Massachusetts that has me in conversation with white people in a professional way more than I may have been in a decade. Um, and so, so what I mean, so I, and I think that's part of one of the things that could be hard to even understand as a white person, how easily it is for me to craft a world for myself that's very exclusively black um, 
you mentioned, uh, you were reading the bio about um, one of the schools I taught at, uh, Carruthers Center. And when you said it, I was like, she may have never been there. You said it in a way that wasn't familiar in your mouth. And that is a center that I've been to a thousand times, right? For community events, for funerals, for um, fairs. I taught there. The Carruthers Center is an institution. It's a black institution in Chicago. Um, it's not even black owned. It's, it's a, technically owned by the Northwestern University, not Northwest, Northeastern. It's like a, a subsidiary of Northeastern. But they carved out their own little sort of black space in this building. Uh, Conrad Worrell, uh, who recently passed, was the director for years. And um, that is just one space that when you said it out loud, I was like, that's just how different our lives are. This is a place that I go all the time, been a bunch of times. My children have been, my father took me before he died. It's just a place, it's just a part of my, my world um, in a way that I could continue to work there and just do programs there that you would never know about unless I posted it on Instagram. Um, so there's so many examples of that in my life where like I do uh, national training work with um, organization called uh, um, CARES, National CARES Mentoring Organization. It was founded by Susan Taylor. She was Essence Magazine director for about 40 years. She's very black, very independent. Um, like she's on a different level herself, but her organization is, is a black center organization. Um, so when we do work in schools, we're going to schools where black people are and talking to black teachers and black children. Uh, I'm the president of Chicago Association of Black Psychologists, right? So it's a national organization. I'm a Chicago chapter of, um, it exists in Chicago in a way that has its own history and legacy. We have forums, we have, you know, conferences. Um, you could never, ever know that it ever happens because you just have no idea. Um, I go to, you know, uh, black dance conferences. I grew up playing uh, uh, African drums in a company called Alaya Children's Dance Theater, which is a, sort of a, a child of Muntu Dance Theater. Um, I, um, when I was working with the last organization I was with was Real Men Charities, Black art organization. And we had a space in the South Shore called the Quarry. Um, the help organization you mentioned is all Black. Everything I do is all Black. Uh, other than this new sort of company, um, this is actually the public health department out of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, that reached out. They wanted to bring my curriculum out to Massachusetts. And I was like, it's real black. Y'all sure? And I said, yeah, that's, I think so. <laughs> and so we've been doing these focus groups out there. And it's for the first time I have, I'm having these conversations about transferring work that I've developed in black spaces with black communities into a state, Massachusetts, where there's a lot of white folks that love doing sort of diversity kinds of things. Um, I didn't even jump on the bent on the like the, the diversity, the DEI workshop. People reach out to me to come to corporations to train their white people to be more, you know, conscious and woke and considerate and all that kind of stuff. I, again, it's not my work. I have no interest in teaching white people how to be better citizens. No interest. We have there's so many things that black people got to focus on that I feel like I have a lifetime of work to work on, particularly like the, the black boys in Chicago. It's a lifetime of work. And I move around, you know, I just got back from Houston, Omaha this year, like I've been moving around. But there's enough work in Chicago for me to just stay with the black teenage boys for the rest of my life. Focus on that and just do that work. And collaborate with 
legacy black organizations. And there's a bunch of them, you know, the NOI, the, uh, I went to an independent black school called uh, New Concept Development Center, still exists, called, it's a, a charter school called Betty Shabazz. My children went there. Um, and so, the, the, so the, I don't have a, a lot of examples. And, and all of it's very deliberate. I don't, I might be have like three white people's names on my phone, right? I don't, I don't, have, I don't interact with white people. Um, and so I see them like in the streets and I'll be, you know, I, I, I went to um, Great Wolf Lodge with my kids two weeks ago and was like, this is probably the most white people I've been around in a long time, just in a, at a water park. But for the most part, my day-to-day, -day, my world is much, is very, very, very black. And so when you asked about examples of the things I was thinking through were moments in um, with the Massachusetts call, the, the lady that reached out to me is like the director of the center, but then she's had her black staff working with me. So I don't even really interact with her. Um, but there've been a couple of times when she would say something and I would say, it's not really what this is about. Uh, the last specific example, I'll, I, I give long answers. I, don't, I, I plan not to talk so much. I don't know how you got me talking so much. I guess you just, have a welcoming face. Um, but she was talking about facilitators for my curriculum. And she did something that I hear a lot of white people do that I usually ignore, but this time I did, I stopped because it was about my particular work. And she was talking about, she was trying to divvy up the, the categorize the potential facilitator pool between white people and non-white people. And what she was saying is that, you know, uh, I'm sure a white person couldn't do this curriculum as well, but a black person or a POC person could do it just fine. Um, and it was, again, very, very simple, very, very subtle. Um, and I paused it just for real quick. It was like the, the difference between black and POC for my particular work is a wide difference. Um, and I love the solidarity movements, the black and brown movements, the BIPOC. I love the, the coming together of things. Um, I had an experience just a week ago. I was taking my kids to uh, one of the music in the parks. I have a friend named Hannah Marie. She's California-based, but she came back to Chicago to do a performance. She does a, a reclaiming the Black banjo movement. Uh, she's a Black woman. She sings like folk songs, uh, beautiful voice. Um, we, we collaborated on a couple of events. Um, and she was back in town. So I took my kids to see her. Uh, it was out in Pilsen. She was opening up for another band, Son Morocco's, I believe, some of us. Um, and we were in the park in Pilsen, and I just noticed, like, just the 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 vibrancy of the Latinx culture in a park that my kids were able to experience. There's no parallel for in black parks. Um, and the, it, we went inside the, 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 um, the bathroom in the, the field house and there was uh, uh, an a at the door. Um, there's no place in the black community where you go and see an altar when you walk into the space. Uh, we have not maintained those traditions in that way. Uh, the, in, uh, at, in the playground, they were playing in the playground while I was watching my, uh, my friend sing. While they were playing the playground, there was a indigenous Aztec dancing drum group just rehearsing. Just out there, playing drums and doing their, their, their Aztec indigenous steps. There was a, a giant mural of like some cultural stuff, and, and people were speaking Spanish. So I just, I just identified very quickly 
four different elements, the ancestral worship, um, dancing culture, that was just a very commonplace thing in this neighborhood that my kids got to experience from a different cultural lens. Language. Mm-hmm. Language. Um, so, so there's things that, that come, so if I'm staying black and brown, I'm merging two communities where we have differences in what we've lost. Yes. Um, there's this particular narrative that slavery by itself created a trajectory of trauma that is unique to the Black experience. So the restoring of that has to also be unique. And so I had to stop this white woman when she said a POC person could do this. Um, I was like, I don't know if an Asian person would understand what we're talking about. Mm. I don't know that an Indian person would get this. Um, they, their, their cultural advantage board is very different. Yes. Um, and so for a white person to see it's just people of color versus white to not be able to get the nuances of the differences in the, the tra- trajectories is something that I think is very, very common. Um, and so that's the last specific moment. It was recently that where I had to be like, no, I don't think so. Um, but again, it, when I was Such like a- in graduate school, it was happening much more often. Like, when I, you know, I, I've avoided the professional work in that way. I've avoided being in the universities. Um, I've avoided going to conferences. I'm not a part of the APA, the American Psychological Association. I don't go places where I know it's going to be white people doing white things because part of my my safety, my boundaries to be able to cultivate the work that I do, uh, it happens better for me in a what I consider to be a purely cultural little experience where people get what we're doing. It's Black-centered. And I heard yeah. you just say that so well. And just everything you just said, like, Mic drop, like very, just so essential because I heard it in one of the most essential forms of boundaries of saying, I don't do that in my life anymore. Like Mm. you just said, like I might have stories from my childhood, but I have specifically chosen to not engage in white spaces and to raise my family this way and to have a professional life and to even have like your entire ministry of what you do. And even for you to preface it. You must to get me on this podcast, Goon Shai. You were trying to get me on this, this is April. (laughs) It's not that important to me. (laughs) right. And you know what? I just think it's brilliant what you're saying. There's no part of me that's uncomfortable about that. And I Mm. want this to be, I see it as one of the healthiest boundaries a Black person can make in their life to reclaim self, to know self, like what you just brought up about the park, to have language, movement, an altar, right? A celebration of ancestry, food Mm. of that culture. And for you to make a parallel that that that's not yet what's happening in the black experience community, but you know, it needs to, and it's just a matter Mm -hmm. of tracing it back, which is why you stay focused on your work. And you prefaced all of what you just said by saying as a white person, you might not understand this Mm -hmm. because from a white centered view of the world, which is historically very imperialistic, right? Colonialistic Mm -hmm. is, is, how could your life possibly not be white centered, mm-hmm. Obari? Right, right. You know, that as if it's implausible. And mm-hmm. I'm not one that feels that, but I yeah. now know that's very much true in the psychology of a lot of white spaces. Mm-hmm. And it's, it makes me want to throw up inside, which is why having something as simple as this conversation, brilliant. Because yeah. what you just said yeah. is saying, Nope. And I don't even know if I want to participate in this conversation because it's emotional labor (laughs) that I don't even know if I want to participate in. And I appreciate that too, you know, to even have you say that is enough. Yeah, I guess. So. But I do, I I do appreciate your, um, your persistence was meaningful to me. Um, 
because it, it, it conveyed to me that you really were interested, that you really valued, that you really wanted this conversation to happen. Um, the, the assumption that a, an invitation that I should be grateful for is something that, you know, I don't take, I don't take that for granted, right? So a lot of people are like, no, you should be on my podcast. Um, and to, I, I think, I think there's like, an, an, a, people become offended if you say no. Like, what do you mean you don't want to be on my podcast, right? And so for me, it matters that you asked and you kept asking. I was like, oh, okay, she really wants this. She's been following my work. She's really paying attention. Uh, I read a couple of interviews uh, of things that you did. I, I, I made sure that the emotional investment was worth it. And so I'm not, you know, even me saying that it took a while to get here isn't like, you know, um, I don't well, mean that to be offensive. I mean to say your process, your approach made a difference to even have this conversation happen. The things that I'm saying right now, I feel comfortable to say them because I feel like you want to hear them. Um, yes. So when I when I skip it, it's because I feel like it's not even, it's not worth my trouble. It's my own personal boundary, but I don't even think people want it. I don't even know that people actually want to hear the things that I have to say. Um, and I think there's a window. I think this, this is happening. I'm somebody um, out of, uh, I forget what state they're coming from. Uh, EDC is a company, the evaluation company I does some work with. They asked, they asked me for a report about decolonizing mental health. Um, and so I struggled to write it because, I'm again, I'm used to just speaking out loud freely, just talking about what it is. Uh, I've never been in a place where I have to, like, whisper, like, white people in, in the in the workplace around the, the water cooler. I've never been in a place where I've had to tiptoe around any stuff because I'm talking about black people. You can speak freely and it's never been an issue. And so this was a, a recent time when I've had to put pen to paper, write something around intergenerational trauma to an audience that I'm imagining would be mostly white. And I found myself dancing. I was like, you know, mm. I could just give it to them, right? But they, if they ain't gonna read it or if they're not gonna publish it, if they're saying, no, this is too harsh. So it took me a really long time to do something that was a very simple task that would have happened very easily if we were just talking about it. But I found myself struggling with thinking about an audience. And the question is always, how much of this do they want? Like, do they really want like an unabridged version of how I see this? Because um, some of it's uh, impolite or some of it's uncomfortable, it's, you know, as you say. Um, but I said, I, I, you know, I got tired of like toiling with it. I just decided, I'm just gonna write it, I'm gonna send it. And then they're gonna edit it, we're gonna deal with it. And, and they took it, they were like, they okay. Took it. <laughs> they took it. Um, they were like, this is really interesting. And which is a code word for like- <laughs> What the what the <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, I'll, you know, I'll take, I'll take interesting. It's, it's, there, it's better than, I don't know, we can't do this. I can't put my name on this. Um, so I do appreciate there's a moment of opportunity where people are all open to having more difficult conversations than I think has ever happened in a long time, at least. Um, so I'm appreciative of that. I'm appreciative of your work, of, of the white people that are trying to struggle with these things. Um, and you know, if y'all want it, you know, there's lots of us that are that are, they got it. They've got lived experience and uh, analysis and, and, to and to hear lived experience. Yeah. And somebody listening in their own comfort of their own home, and then mm. he, they hear somebody story, and they're like, "Oh shoot, I did that. I do that mm. sometimes." Mm -hmm. That as uncomfortable that is, it's not confrontational in the sense that the shame that might come up mm. is mine to deal with as I listen. Versus yeah. Yeah. situationally, it feels more confrontational. So yeah. where I'm going with getting the conversation is. I want you to bring it. Like, I want you to say the mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. that normally you'd brush by and be like, it ain't worth the emotional effort mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. let you know that that's offensive. Right, but right. the value of that is I've really come to discover in my own illusion breaking identity mm -hmm, process mm -hmm. that one of the best ways to have your illusion be 
opt yeah. is through hearing somebody else's story. That says, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I interact with a white person the other day and they did blah, blah, blah. And this is what it felt like in my body. Yeah. And I decided to be like, whatever, and walk mm-hmm. right along. Mm-hmm. But to not, I know why you don't do that and why you've designed your life around not going mm-hmm. into these white spaces. The more I study and learn about the not so recent history, yeah. 10, 20, 30, 40 years to go, right? Into the 1900s, into the 800s. Suddenly I realized, no wonder black people don't want to be around us. Good for them. Good. You know, buying the safety. But black people have always done that, Obari. Like, that's what's blown my mind. Yeah. Black people have always created culture amongst themselves, resilience amongst themselves, success mm-hmm. and self-sufficiency. And yet white people continue coming in there to disturb that, to mm-hmm. recreate a sense of dependency. Yeah. And so that's where I think the fine layers of coding of choosing not to pay attention, it's because it's such compacted trauma in white bodies Mm -hmm. that we haven't started, which is why I'm pushing that conversation more in white spaces. You know, it's like, I get this is tough, but we got to get digging Mm because it's just Mm -hmm. as compacted in us as it is anybody else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I wonder about is the bridge of motivation to, again, enter the conversation in a genuine way. I know for me, it's easier for me to get men to do that work for themselves because they are connected to women that they care about. Um, the wives, daughters, especially daughter, I can get a man to really think about the way he is moving around in the world perpetuating a culture of masculinity that gives other men permission to treat his daughter in that same way. But that is a very intimate connection. Um, so that that becomes the hook. It becomes like, okay, I'm, we are the same thing. Black men and Black women, we are, we are intricately connected in a, in, in a way that makes me have to do this work once I'm confronted with the awareness. Um, I don't know that, you know, I, I'm curious about that bridge from white to Black. Uh, unless you are, you know, I, I can see a scenario where, you know, you have a, a child that is considering bringing a Black person into the family, and now you got a mixed baby. Right now, you got to figure this thing out. Um, but in terms of, like, the proximity otherwise, if you in rural America, if you in, you know, Evanston, I mean, there's places where you can be, have the same white life that I have, a Black life, and not have the same motivation to do the work you're asking people to do because there's no proximity of intimate connection that motivates them to want to do that kind of transformation. Which again, which is why the 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 framework has to be considerate, right? Careful enough to get people to, to want to do it um, because they could choose not to and don't have a personal connection to a black person or if the one black friend they got as oblivious to and to care less and they're just grateful to be connected to the resources. Um, I think the, the, the power of the George Floyd moment, the power of the putting the cameras on the dogs and the civil rights movement. I mean, it was, they, they, they become a forced massive reckoning that happens when the proximity gets into the house through the TV or through whatever it is. But other, other than that, once the, 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 the trend dies, once the momentum goes, I, I don't know. I don't know what the hook is in the same way for white people to have to do the work to want to be better for black people that they don't know, that they don't have a connection to, that they don't have a, any obligation to. 
uh, which is very different again for black men and black women because I can I can go I go right for the obligation. Like you got a black mama, what you talking about, boy? Like I I can't say that to white people. I can't you know. Again, I, I haven't I haven't wrestled with how to do that because again, it's not it's my not work, your work, right? That is something that I in in my own wrestling in my process of mm-hmm. um uh there there I've come to learn in my own cracking of my false identity as a person born into a spiritual yoga space mm-hmm. that I've come to recognize language within a lot of these quote spiritual spaces that I can now see as actually rooted in just pure extraction and appropriation for Mm -hmm. instance right well that's Mm -hmm. not new but to be able to reframe my own cultural upbringing as like oh wow I'm actually a child of cultural appropriation not Mm -hmm. a spiritual community practicing Mm -hmm. yoga and meditation so Mm -hmm. just for me to reframe that there is a large population similar to me that thinks they're conscious Mm-hmm. thinks they're helpful and yeah. doesn't realize that some of the things we might do are inherently ignorant and rooted in a long history of of whiteness meaning mm-hmm. and i mean horribly predatory i don't mean well meaning i mean you know from the 1900s to from from 1900 to 1976 there were at least 76 lynchings every year of black bodies yes. now white people don't know this as a mm-hmm. collective body i think you started this conversation better than i could have ever thought is white people don't yet have a sense of their own culture as mm-hmm. white people together we don't even like the feeling of being called white mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we've never had to have that there was never yeah. a time in history where it was like oh you're white you know mm-hmm. there was but not the same way that it's like you're reduced to the white body and mm-hmm. now white people are like what do you mean i'm reduced i'm not just a white person i mm-hmm. i'm nuanced i have yeah of course you are just like black people are nuanced mm-hmm. just like brown people are nuanced just like mm-hmm. every human on this planet is yeah, but it's um, I feel there are a lot of not all white people, of course, because there's spectrums of participation in any movement yeah. or awakening awareness. Is the possibility that there are people that really want to be a part of self-examining in a way where they know what to do with themselves? And I think mm-hmm. far too many well-meaning white people are are frozen in, in guilt and shame we want to participate but like what the hell do we actually do mm-hmm. and that's the problem we don't go talking to black people about that we need to come our own community and start unpacking these things amongst each other and create a sense of community and culture that then supports a larger liberation movement mm-hmm. of anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism which spreads across the globe it's not just the american the black american experience you know yeah, yeah. and i like that you really separated the black American experience is a unique experience that needs to be spoken to as it is not Mm -hmm. merged into a minority, not merged Mm -hmm. into a language of POC because it's one of the ways that the whitewashing supremacy agenda Mm -hmm. separates to not acknowledge black people Mm -hmm. as having built the foundations of, you know, all monetary growth and and, um, value over the last number of decades. So anyways, I'm saying all that to say I have a sense of hope, but that's my work, right? So I appreciate mm-hmm. the pessimism and I appreciate that it's not your work. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's really pessimism, but more just asking a question like, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that going to work? And it's like, I don't know, but I know mm-hmm. that, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I know that I'm just do- willing to do my part and 
sometimes the question does have to be provocative. And I come mm -hmm. from spiritual, predatory, sexual, physical, mental, psychological abuse. Yeah. And that stuff's trickery. And it mm -hmm. made me realize, oh shit, my experience is not exceptional at all. Because mm -hmm. black people, black women, they've been saying this stuff for centuries. Mm -hmm. There ain't nothing special about my community at all. Let's have a much mm -hmm. more important conversation about yeah. these predatory formulas. And I know in my community that was uncomfortable when I started bringing up the white exceptionalism within our mm -hmm, community. Mm -hmm. We want to pretend like we're so holy and accepting of mm -hmm. all people. Like, bless yeah. your sweethearts, you know? <laughs> Don't you see, right? Um, because it's just white supremacy re repackaged, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's my sense of it is I feel like there's spectrums of, of participation and there I feel like there is a timing and there's far more people since all the, there was like a more white people waking up to things that black people have known for centuries. It's like mm -hmm. what you pointed out about me saying Dr. Carruthers versus Dr. Carruthers, right? Or how mm -hmm. you say it. I don't know this incredible doctor's research and I've read mm -hmm. all her research yeah, yeah, yeah. only the last couple of months, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the more I learned, I had those same epiphanies. Like, Jesus, these are institutional figures right. within entire communities that have shaped culture. Right. No wonder there are these universities, this, this, you know, now I understand what I've known and heard about among friends for years. But now as I'm reading the literature, seeing the studies, understanding from points of view at different times, it, it just, it lands differently. And it makes mm -hmm. me realize, wow, this is what it means to have systemic racism, because yeah. we're getting only the, the information that's given in the educational system, that's perpetuated right. through the media, that's given in these small white spaces, and, you know, white, some white people have never known that redlining exists, even though it's been an mm -hmm, institutional mm -hmm. part of the system for decades, right? Yeah, yeah. These are the types of things that have come to bother me more than ever in realizing, wow, a lot of well-meaning spaces don't know a lot of very basic, simple mm -hmm, black mm -hmm, history mm -hmm. that isn't black history. It's our history. That's right, right. Because we were watching, participating, creating that devastation. And right. now we want to call it black history. Right, right. No, our ancestry watched that mm. or engaged in that or in whatever way, but have we dug up what our ancestry did? And the answer mm -hmm. for most white people is no, because we don't even have a sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's not new to you. I'm just saying it out loud. <laughs> acknowledgement. <laughs> Let me just say that. Yeah. It's new to a lot of people listening, maybe. <laughs> sure. um, well, I just want to say thank you. No and, problem. um, ask if there's just any last anything that you want to share in terms of um, um the veil of I'll illusion. Say one last quick thing only because you asked for it <laughs> and um, bring it it's, <laughs> it is it's again it's, it's it's the subtle stuff you're talking systems you're talking patterns you're talking incremental you mean the, the buildup of a thing that becomes a system um and language is really an important part of those systems and um I don't know. I don't know when I started to become more uncomfortable with the phrase white supremacy, but something about the way we frame the value systems, the minority. I, I was I was I was more uncomfortable with minority for a longer time. Um, the, the the connotation of major and minor, the mm. the inaccuracy of black and brown people being a physical minority on the planet. Right, I'll, those things mm. were easy to pick apart. 
um, but like just the, the the psychological implication of those words, I, I catch now in ways that I didn't catch. Um, I don't use white supremacy no more. Uh, I use white pathology. I use white domination. I use I use other things because saying because we so because what happens in the well-meaning conversation is a person is trying to attack white supremacy as a system and saying it over and over again, but the subtle reminder is connecting white and supreme at the same time. Um, I think we have conversations about racism in ways that makes white people more powerful in our imaginations than is actually true, mm. which diminishes our ability to have the agency to do the work that we need to do, even after a panel discussion with just black people. When we do this a lot, black people talk, we just, just black people in the room, no white people around, and we spend the whole time talking about white people, just giving that group more power than it deserves and doing it in a way that makes them untouchable. And so then we leave defeated, right? We intending to go to a space trying to invigorate and empower, and we leave just feeling like the same shame, embarrassment, powerlessness that keeps us stagnant. Um, I think language has a lot to do with that. And so I just wanted to point out, again, it's nitpicky stuff, but it's also subtle and it's also meaningful in ways that um, I've learned to at least address when people are asking for it. And again, most of the time, I just leave it alone. Black people, white people, whatever it is. I, just, you know, I, I, I get what you mean when you say white supremacy. Um, but I also think that it's, there's something underneath. There's, a, there's an implicit, you know what I mean, like re referencing, reinforcing of the thing that is the problem through the language to describe that problem. That was a gem. Um, use the language instead. White pathology. Or white domination. That's what I use. Instead. Or white domination. I really yeah. like those as alternatives. Um, the uh, the language I've heard the most in relation to white supremacy was this assumption that whites about a supremacy is. I use um, yeah. myth of white supremacy. Sometimes the myth too. of white supremacy. Right. And I, I believe I've gotten that from Resma Menicum, where he talked okay. about changing that the the assumption underlying any conversation around mm -hmm. privilege mm -hmm. and whiteness is it's diversifying from the assumption or the myth of mm -hmm. white body supremacy, that that's yeah. what we're comparing it to. Mm -hmm. So this is such a great landing point because mm -hmm. language does matter. Mm -hmm. And as nitpicky as it sounds, it's not nitpicky at all. It's mm -hmm. saying the entomology of words, the words that are infused into culture for us to pretend like it's not a big deal when really it's infusing unconscious or subtle energy systems around mm -hmm. associations mm -hmm. and more than anything understanding symbology and the associations that happen through historical symbols yeah. so even keeping a word of supreme linked to a conversation of dismantling yeah. is inherently um like canceling itself mm -hmm. like on an energetic level and i can yeah. i can appreciate that um because i love mm -hmm. words so thank yeah. you well, folks, um, I want to just again say thank you, Dr. Abari. I really appreciate your time, your lens, and your willingness to just go there with us a bit today. <laughs> I appreciate I, the I invitation, do. too. I do really and appreciate And I would argue the comfort, right? I appreciate that. It, it, it makes a difference. Um, early in the conversation, if I say a thing and I feel discomfort, I pull back. Right. So the, your approach, your 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 desire to hear and to learn make me lean in instead. Um, so I think these could be comfortable conversations, even though they're they're difficult, tense. Um, they're just 
the frame matters, the intention matters. And I think you set them very well. Well, well, thank you for that. And um, I have received that feedback that in the space, it does become a safe space. And that's really mm -hmm. quite a lot of the intention is that in order for us to really examine places that have always been hidden, we yeah. do have to create safety. And that's a very tra trauma-informed process that yeah. these memories live in our body. And what we're doing mm -hmm. is we're actually relearning safety. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate how um, Resma Menicum talks about the importance of us working in our own bodies, the revolution mm -hmm. of us finding out, are you regulated? Because mm -hmm. historically, Black people have had to adjust themselves to our white bodies. Mm -hmm. And unconsciously, we think that's the normal. Mm -hmm. And so what you just said around feeling safe, right? It's like, oh, I, I, I was able to lean in. These are things that are subtle, and yet we all have the ability to do in our own bodies and nervous systems. And as white people, we can learn historical memory that's in our bodies uniquely, mm -hmm. just as Black people can do that same work in their own bodies, right. in our own communities, and our own cultures, so that there are more possibilities to come together and have shared safety. True. So, th so thank you again. Um, yes. Um, I want to thank you all for listening. Please like and share um, this episode with someone that you know. And please remember that dismantling whiteness is an everyday, all-day, lifelong endeavor. It does not end. It's a commitment to think, do, and live better than we've ever been expected to or allowed to before. Dismantling white body supremacy begins inside of you, inside of me, and inside of the collective we in our personal commitment to a in our personal commitment in our own bodies of culture to grow the white experience beyond assumed supremacy. I invite you to listen, learn, and grow beyond the limitations that whiteness has continued and continues to impose on all of us. If you need support beyond this listening space, you can connect with me at gurunishan.com. And if you'd like to share your story, please email me at gurunishan, at gn at gurunishan.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, please fill out the form gurunishan.com slash whiteness. Thank you so much. Please like, subscribe, subscribe, and rate, review, and share this podcast with someone that you love.